Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. On Friday, October 6, 1536, an old man was led from his prison cell in Belgium to be executed. For two years, he had been confined in jail, awaiting the opportunity to answer the charges against him. And though that day finally did come, and though his arguments were eloquent, they fell upon deaf ears. Because he was, after all, an enemy of England, his homeland, but even worse, he was an enemy of the church and of God. And for years, the church of Rome had sought to capture and to bring its justice upon him. And perhaps no man had greater notoriety in England than he, and perhaps no man had ever caused such an uproar or controversy in the church. William Tyndale had translated the Bible into English. And if that wasn't bad enough, he wasn't content to keep it to himself, but he printed and smuggled thousands of copies of the English New Testament into England and declared that his mission was to one day make the boy who drives the plow no more of the scriptures than the Pope himself. And as many copies as the church found, they burned publicly with with many warnings. But they still couldn't burn them fast enough to keep them out of the hands of the English people. Now, could there have been a worse crime? Because Latin was the language of the church, and thus it was the language of the scriptures, and it had been that way for almost a millennium. And for most of that thousand years, if you actually wanted to know what the Bible said, you needed to learn Latin, usually by dedicating your life to the service of the church and entering the monastery. And only then would you really have the opportunity to try and learn to read the Bible for yourself. And yet, ironically, most of those who did enter the service of the church didn't even bother to learn to read the Bible because... The power of the Church of Rome rested not in Scripture, but in the traditions and the laws of the Pope. And so in Tyndale's day, probably only a handful of people in all of England could actually read the Bible for themselves. Now, the Bible was not something for the normal person, because the normal person was too stupid to understand it. If you gave them a Bible, you surely created a heretic that you'd have to burn later. And so in a cold act of betrayal by supposed friends, William Tyndale was captured and then taken to prison. And on that October morning, an old man hated by his country and the church. He was tied to a stake, strangled to death, and then burnt to ash so that nothing remained of him. His last words before he died were a prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. If you have a Bible, either near you or whatever, on your phone, pull it out, just really quick. Pull out a a copy of something, a Bible or a digital Bible, and I want you to just open it up. Just flip through some of the pages, just to yourself. Look at the letters, notice some of the words, read some of those to yourself. That you are not only able to read what is in this book, but to find one so quickly as a miracle that Christians for most of the church's history would not have been able to comprehend. When Tyndale's Bible first started being smuggled into England, there was a poor old woman who was desperate to get her hands on a copy. 
And so she scrimped and she saved for months and months until finally she was able to buy one off the black market. But this poor old woman, as desperate as she was to know what was in the Bible, had a problem. She was blind and she couldn't read it. And so for months and months more, she scrimped and she saved until finally she was able to hire a woman to come and read the Bible to her. But then you have another person knowing your secrets. She was soon found out, and so she and her Bible were burned in the fire. Not too long, though, after Tyndale's death, the king of England ended up passing a law saying that there had to be an English Bible in every single church. Uh, But people's desire for the Bible was so high that they actually had to chain it to the altar. Otherwise, people would try to take it home so that they could read it for themselves. And then a new job began cropping up around England for Bible shouters. And these were people who could both read and shout loud enough over the din of the crowds who gathered to hear what the Bible said. Even during sermons on the weekends, the congregation would just ignore the preacher and tell the Bible shouters to keep reading from the Word of God. Because for the first time in a millennia, the normal person was able to know God's words in his or her own language. And people could not get enough. And so this English Bible that's in our hands, it's a book translated in blood. Because it literally cost people their lives so that we could read it today. Many men and women were tortured and burned at the stake in order to keep others from seeking out God's word in in English. And yet instead, their desire to know God through his word was such that it only inspired others to keep seeking it. Now, hearing this today, these people sound crazy. The novelty of the Bible has long worn off. Here in the West, we've long since gone through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, modernism and postmodernism, and they have all told us that the Bible is outdated and, you know, it's no longer relevant for us. And on the other hand, in and around the church, we hear about the Bible all the time, that it's God's message to us, whatever that means, it's holy, I mean, it's the title, the Holy Bible, right? It's complex and it's difficult and it's kind of a fear ye all who enter here unless you go equipped with your massive lexicons and big dictionaries and commentaries, right? And so I think what happens is that for most of us, we end up in the middle, right? We're not sure exactly what is going on with this book. And we figure it's just best ignored apart from the weekend sermon because after all, that's safest. We just find someone who we like and we trust who can tell us what it actually says. We're kind of going back to the Middle Ages almost. But what if the Bible is actually meant for you? Right? What if the Bible, as scary and as weird as it seems, is meant to be read and understood by you? Right? What if you, a middle school student, or a rocket scientist, a car mechanic, or a stay-at-home parent, you know, a mailman, a NASCAR driver, a snake wrangler, or a Bigfoot hunter, <laughs> or fill in the blank, right? <laughs> truly can read the Bible and know God, and find that he delights to be known by you. As we mentioned, starting in June, we are going to be going through the New Testament together as a church. And so today, I want to give us some things to keep in mind to help us keep reading this summer. And none of the things today are revolutionary. I think they're just things that are commonly overlooked or missed. Some of them, I hope, encourage us. Some of them are probably going to scare us a little bit. But as we say in youth ministry, if it's not a little scary, is it really worth doing? 
And that, that is a joke, I promise. And I'm going to pray for us one more time. Uh, Father, I thank you again that we can gather, uh, that we can learn about you uh, through your word. Um, please uh, don't let my words get in the way uh, this morning. Help us to, to hear you um, calling us uh, to know you better. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, um, I have a confession to make. Half the notes on your bulletin are going to be worthless. I decided I was going to change things at the midnight hour. Um, so there's plenty of blank space. You'll have to fill them in yourselves, but just heads up in case you're wondering what Sky did. All right, the first thing that we need to keep in mind, I think, as we approach the Bible, is seems like a really simple one, but it's one we tend to ignore. And it's that the Bible is a book. It is quite literally a, a book, whether it's hardcover, paperback, leather-bound, or digital. It has words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters. And sure, we've complicated things in the church by saying that the Bible has 66 books, even though a few of them are only a few paragraphs. Uh, and then we talk about verses and references, and there's numbers, and there's testaments, and all sorts of stuff. But in the long history of the Bible, all of that is actually relatively new. And so the Bible really is a, a book. In fact, nerd moment for us today, it's what the word actually means. Because Bible just comes from the word biblion. You can hear the connection, biblion, Bible. Right? And biblion just means book, or what a book essentially was a thousand years ago. Now, the, fi or the fact that the Bible is indeed a book might not be all that comforting to you. In fact, many of us see a book, and we kind of shudder a little bit, because remember the torture of high school literature, um, and if you grew up here, you remember old Wassel exams. Thank you, teachers. And when someone gives you a book, right, it comes with this awful expectation. Right? A book has to be read. Right? And deep down in the dark recesses of your heart, a certain thought is confessed only to yourself. You hate books, and you hate reading. Why does God have to be like that friend who's always giving you books to read that you don't have the time or energy for? And yes, as you get to know me, I will probably be that friend. But hear me out. Because the Bible is a book that's meant to be read and understood by anyone. Anyone. And one of the ways we see that is just in the language that the Bible is written in. So for trivia night, the Bible was originally written in three languages. The Old Testament was in classical Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament was in what we call Koine Greek. And all these languages have actually died out. No one speaks them today. So they're called dead languages, trivia fact two. And hundreds of years after the New Testament was written, Latin became the official language of the church, thanks to the Romans. And it stayed that way for about a thousand years through the dark and middle ages. But around the 1400s-ish, there was this returning fascination in the church with copies of the Bible and the Old Greek. And this actually led to this nail-biter of a race between two monks who were determined that they were going to put out the first full copy of the Greek New Testament um, in the first time in forever. And third fun fact, Erasmus, the guy who won, cheated. And shame on him. He's supposed to be a monk. All right, let's soak in. All right, but as people began to be familiar with the old Greek Bible, they began to notice something weird. Right? The Greek used was different than the ancient or classical Greek that they were familiar with, like Homer, um, the guy who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, not the Simpsons. Think Trojan horse, Troy, 
Brad Pitt, that guy. And so people decided that the language of the Bible actually must be something extra special and extra spiritual, and they began to call it Holy Ghost Greek. And at the end of the 1800s, excavations began on this city in central Egypt called Oxyrhynchus. And in the garbage dump of that ancient city, they began to pull out pieces of writing. And it was the same writing as the New Testament. But there's something strange, because the stuff they were finding wasn't stuff that was important. It was like grocery lists and reminders and quick notes to family and and graffiti even, and it was on like just broken pieces of pottery. And so Holy Ghost Greek turned out to just be the normal, everyday language of the carpenter, the baker, the merchant, the woman managing her home. And so they changed the name from Holy Ghost Greek, thankfully, to Koine, or Common Greek, because it was the language of the common people. So why the history lesson? That's to make this point. The very way in which the Bible was written was to make it available to as many people as possible. Right? The writers of the New Testament wrote in the language everyone would have been able to understand in their day. Anyone. And some of the books of the Bible, in fact, like John's Gospel, use a style of language so simple it makes the very hungry caterpillar look like Shakespeare. Kind of joking. And so, yes, the Bible is a book. And yes, a book is meant to be read. But the Bible was written, and it's still even translated today so that God's message is available to you. Right? Because God wants to be known by you. All right, second. So if the Bible is a book, then the Bible needs to be read as a book. And there's a lot of things that we could say about this, but there's just one that I want to focus on today. And so God has revealed himself to us through a variety of writings in the Bible or genres. He gives us stories about Israel's exodus. He gives us tales about its kingdoms and its kings. He gives us letters from apostles to the churches they're caring for. But he also gives us things like poetry and prayers and prophecies and sermons and songs and a bunch of other stuff that we still don't really understand today. And because the Bible is made up of a bunch of different kinds of writings, it's important that we read them according to their genre, as we would other books. Right? So we read a, a historical account like Acts as verifiable fact. Or we read Paul's letters as letters to churches that are addressing specific situations. We read poetry as poetry, and songs as songs, and sermons as sermons. And we expect to find a lot of imagery and metaphors in those. Right? We don't read Shakespeare like we read The Hunger Games. We don't read Louis L'Amour westerns like we read the poetry of Lord Alfred Tennyson. And we don't read Twilight like we just don't read Twilight, actually. <laughs> and one of the barriers to us, I think, today, as we approach the Bible, is often how we try to read it. Because a lot of us have been told that the Bible is, is like a textbook or a manual, if or if you're from the 90s, remember, basic instructions before leaving Earth, something like that. We know the Bible is an important book. But we think that it must give us truth literally, literally then, like a textbook. But this often leads us into trouble. And if we forget to read it literally, we'll call it, we then find ourselves in really weird and strange territory. So, for example, Isaiah 55, 12 says this. 
You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Okay, if we read this literally, right, as though it is a textbook, that means trees have actual human-like hands, and they're capable of clapping. And that's terrifying, people, right? Because what else can they do with those hands? Right, so to keep us sane, we do need to pay attention to what kind of writing we're reading. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to think of trees the same way. Plus, when we go through the New Testament this summer, we're going to have a crisis of faith when we get to some of Jesus' teachings, like the one about plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin, and you realize you like both of your eyes. You can't choose between the two of them. And for future reference, keep both your eyes because Jesus isn't being literal there. But for us today, reading the Bible as a book can be extra hard because what we tend to read can often be read in the span of eating a donut. Like tweets. I didn't realize we had donuts this morning. So. Uh, like tweets or Facebook posts or news blurbs. Right? We're not asked to read well, to read deeply, or even to pay attention because what we read is often meant to entertain us. I mean, even in our personal communication today, a lot of it is with emojis, like we're going back to ancient Egypt. So say we want to read, that was funny, but say we want to read the Bible well. <laughs> what can we do then? Here's my encouragement, is to read a bunch of different kinds of things and to start with where you're at. So if you like history, try a good historical account like Alfred Lansing's endurance about Shackleton's doomed voyage to the South Pole. Or find a good uh, biography. Um, a couple months ago, I found a used copy of Ron Chernow's biography on Washington. It's a little large, a little dry, but still interesting. Or try some poetry like Robert Frost or Emily Dickinson. Or if you're in a mood, there's always Edgar Allan Poe. But if you're in a mood, maybe avoid Poe a little bit. Um, or check out a good novel. Like if you really want to challenge, there's some 19th century Russian literature that is going to blow your mind. Um, or if you're dipping your toe in, there, I, there's truly a copy of The Hunger Games at every single Goodwill. I promise that. Um, or if you want to feel a bit more holy, there's always The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Though, The Horse and His Boy is definitely the best chronicle in Arnia. And if you've never read The Very Hungry Caterpillar, now is the time. To be clear, I'm not saying that the Bible is, is fiction or is just a bunch of made-up stuff, because it's not. But if you want to read the Bible well, right, to read it as a book, you need to practice reading well, I think. And that leads me to our next thing to keep in mind. And it's this, that the Bible was written for you, but not to you. Okay, and that sounds weird, I know, but it is something simple that we tend to just overlook. So for example, the first letter to the Thessalonians is not written to us. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says, this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may God give you grace and peace. Right, we are not the church in ancient Thessalonica. We don't live in the mid-first century. We don't face persecution by the cult of the Roman emperor or by first-century Jewish synagogues. And so when I say that the Bible is not to you, I mean that the Bible is written to peoples and churches long ago, 
right, who lived in a different time, a different place, a different context, and frankly, a world similar but very different than our own. In youth small groups, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark this year, which we'll be reading together as a church this summer. And in all likelihood, Mark was actually written to Christians in Rome who were facing intense persecution, right, who were systematically rooted out, crucified, and fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum. And so Mark tells his account of Jesus' ministry, and he highlights and he nuances certain parts to encourage those Christians in Rome. And so there's a part at the beginning of Jesus' work where he's led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's tempted there by the devil. And, and Matthew and Luke show this face-off between Satan and the devil, and Jesus lays the smack down on him by quoting Scripture, and it's great, and Jesus wins. But in Mark, instead, he highlights this little detail that Jesus was out in the wilderness with the wild beasts. And then he just says that Jesus was tempted by Satan. He never actually gives an end to this engagement. And in doing so, Mark helps those Christians in Italy see that Jesus was also with them in the very, temp- or the very dangers that they were facing. Or one of my favorite books, Isaiah. It's written specifically to the kingdom of Judah and the sloping decline of its civilization as they're wrestling with idolatry and rebellion against God and they're facing threats of ancient world empires in Assyrian Babylon. Deuteronomy, another one of my favorites, is a sermon to the nomadic Hebrew people who have left Egypt 40 years previous and wandered around the ancient Near East, and now they're preparing to finally take the land God promised to their forefathers. And before you get worried, right, you find that stuff out as you read. Right? I do believe that the Bible tells you what you need to know in order to understand it. You don't need a PhD in ancient Near Eastern literature or a master's in Greco-Roman women's hairstyles, right? though that would be really cool, and you just might be my hero. But really, you just need to pay attention and keep reading, and more often than not, the Bible will make it clear. So that's fine and all. But how can something be for us if it's not to us? Because I thought the Bible was supposed to speak to me. Why are we talking about ancient Israel and first century Christians in Greece? If it's not about me, what is the point? Think in a really weird way for us, especially today. God tells his story through the stories of others. And God shows us his character as he engages Bronze Age Israel in their rebellion, as he comforts Iron Age Christians in their persecution. And in their lives, and in God's communication with them through prophets and apostles, God reveals himself. Right? He shows us his hope, his joy, his pain, his grace, his love. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all share the story of Jesus through their personal experiences and conversations and perspectives, but God still speaks through them. And through their stories in the Bible, we also learn about humanity and about ourselves and about sin and its effects and about what it truly means to belong to God as his people. And so these things, while not directly to us, still share truths for us that shape how we live and are in relationship with both God and others. And so while the Bible isn't directly to us, and isn't even about us, apologies, it's still written 
for us, for you to know God. And so there's very, one more very important thing that we need to do. All right, so far we focused a lot on how the Bible is an ancient book. And yes, the Bible is an ancient book written to ancient peoples. But it's also more than a book. Because the Bible is God's written message to you. It is his invitation to know him, to turn from your ignorance and your rebellion and your sin that drives you further into brokenness and death. And to know him as your loving father who gave up the son he loves to pay for your sins that you could actually know him and be in relationship with him. So we need to read the Bible with God. And the purpose of the Bible is not to inform you, though it does inform you on things. Its purpose is to form you, right? To form your character and your relationship with God. And to do that, God still speaks through the Bible. And we need to approach our time in Scripture as time spent with him, to know him, to seek him, to hear him, to be shaped by him. Trips us up sometimes when we read the Bible and we, we do notice the human voices. We even recognize that some of them were better writers, others were simple thinkers, some wrote beautifully, others bluntly. Mark really liked the word immediately, as you will immediately see. Paul was more of a professor, but whenever he got excited, he turned into a poet. John used simple, everyday language and imagery to bring us into the profound mystery and beauty of God. But when we see those human fingerprints, we worry that this, this book can't possibly be from God for us. But when we do that, when we worry, we lose something important about who God is and how he relates to us. Because God consistently reveals himself to humanity through humanity, as through the very human prophets and apostles of Scripture. But most importantly of all, God has revealed himself through Jesus, his son who became a human just like us. A very old, dead Christian named Athanasius whom I totally would name a kid after, said that God saw humanity looking in all the wrong places for him. That we looked above to the heavens and saw the sun, moon, and stars, and we we called them gods. Or then we looked down to the earth and creation below and the wood and stone, and we turned them into idols to worship. Or we even looked inside of ourselves and worshipped ourselves as though we were gods. And to save us from all the wrong places we were seeking, God became something that we humans could actually understand. He himself became human. Jesus, during his last meal with his disciples before his, his death, told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. 
So why are you asking me to show him to you? Frankly, it's still a great mystery that when we look at Jesus, a human man, we, we look at God also in a way that we can't understand. And in a similar way, I think, when we read Matthew and Moses, Peter or Paul, we read their human words, and yet we encounter the Spirit of God calling us to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know you, that you have given us your word in ways that we can read and understand, but most importantly, that you have given us your son, Jesus, so that we might know you, that we might be brought into relationship with you, that through his death and resurrection, we might also live with you. Thank you for your love and your grace towards us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.